When the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on the earth? Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. May our testimonies be as deep and as strong as that of Jacob, who when confronted by one who sought to destroy his faith declared, I could not be shaken. Hello, my friends. I'm Jared Halverson. Welcome back to Unshaken. Can I first thank you once again and pay you the compliment for spending so much time with me in Scripture each week? Yeah, just this past week, I uh, stumbled across some of Jordan Peterson's videos about the Old Testament. Some of you, I'm sure, are familiar with Jordan Peterson, uh, the psychologist that seems to know everything. And uh, he had done these lectures, I don't know, four years ago or something, on, on biblical stories in Genesis, taking more of a psychological approach to the text. Uh, fascinating insight. I don't agree, agree with everything, but there's some really amazing uh, things that he said in there. But his videos are like two and a half hours long. And it was so funny, uh, hypocritical perhaps, as I was looking at that thing, and oh, that sounds really interesting, but... Two and a half hours? Seriously? Who has time to watch videos that long? And then I just started laughing out loud thinking, my viewers do, uh, or at least they, they have more courage than I seem to. Uh, so I, I took uh, a page from your book and mustered my courage uh, and hit play on a two and a half hour video. And, and like so many of you do, it was just on my commute time and I'd listen to a half an hour here or 45 minutes there or 15 minutes here or whatever. And, and really enjoyed it. And so if you discovered that secret long before I did, uh, hats off to you. And I really do hope the time that we spend together, is, whether it's all in one uh, massive block or whether it's uh, cut out throughout the, throughout the week, I really do pray that it's a blessing to you. So uh, today we are going to flood the earth. Uh, and as we talked a couple of weeks ago when we discussed the fall, there were actually three falls uh, rather than one that we talked about. The first was the fall of Lucifer that was given us in Moses chapter 4, at JST. The second was the fall of Adam and Eve, which we compared a little bit more to a jump, since they, they didn't know exactly what they were landing on, but it was a, a conscious choice to move forward. Uh, and then the third fall, and what we really probably should define as the fall of humanity, came in the following generation when the children chose to listen to Satan instead of listen to God. And from that time forward, they became carnal, sensual, and devilish. That's, that's the real fall in humanity. So three falls. Well, last week, as we were discussing uh, the, the visions of Enoch, we saw three floods. That there was a flood of wickedness in his time period, followed by what he saw in vision, a flood of water to cleanse the earth. And then this promise that he was given that in the last days there would be a flood of truth, righteousness from heaven and truth coming up from the earth, to sweep the earth as with a flood in order to gather out God's elect from the four quarters of the earth. Well, today we are going to, to drill down into that second flood. But in a way, there's also that, that repetition of all three. We will see the flood of wickedness again. And then a flood of consequence, because that's maybe a better word than flood of water. Uh, if you remember what Joseph Smith once taught, it's an amazing statement. Noah came before the flood I have come before the fire. Uh, wow. Well, that puts us in an interesting uh, time position, right? Right before another flood of consequence. Both water and fire are cleansing agents. And if God used water the first time 
to flood the earth as a consequence of the flood of evil. Then in the last days, there will be a flood of fire as consequence for the flood of wickedness that has again grown in our time period. But true to form throughout it all, there is that third and most important flood, a flood of truth that God is sending forth across the earth. If you think about what Enoch was up against and what he was trying to accomplish, it's not far different from our day. If you take what Noah was up against as we, as we come to know him today and compare that to our day, there are incredible parallels. In fact, listen to this verse from Genesis 7:18, when it describes the flood of Noah and the waters prevailed and were increased greatly upon the earth. Compare that to Doctrine and Covenants 38:11. For all flesh is corrupted before me. We'll see corruption as one of the problems in Noah's day as well. And the powers of darkness prevail upon the earth. Do you catch the parallels? The waters prevailed in Noah's day. The powers of darkness prevailed in ours. So they prevailed upon the earth among the children of men in the presence of all the hosts of heaven, which causeth silence to reign and all eternity is pained. And the angels are waiting the great command to reap down the earth, to gather the tares that they may be burned. And behold, the enemy is combined. So once again, a flood of darkness, of evil, a flood of consequence, in this case, gathering the tares that they may be burned. Here comes that cleansing fire in the last days to echo or parallel the cleansing flood in those first days. And throughout it all, a great need for you and I to be flooding the earth with truth. Elder uh, Henry B. Iron, President Iron, shared this thought back in 2001. He was describing the wickedness of our day, and he said, the flow has become a flood and soon will be a torrent. It will become a torrent of sounds and sights and sensations that invite temptation and offend the Spirit of God. Swimming back upstream to purity against the tides of the world was never easy. It is getting harder and may soon be frighteningly difficult. But be that as it may, that is the task for you and for me to flood the earth in opposition of that flood of wickedness that is, that is rising. Now, to understand our day, we don't need to look much further than Noah's because there are so many parallels between what he was up against and what we are. Let's start in Moses chapter 8, verse 14. The account has gone through the genealogy until it gets to Noah and then says this, When these men, Noah's sons, began to multiply on the face of the earth and daughters were born unto them, the sons of men saw that those daughters were fair, and they took them wives, even as they chose. Now, these groups can be a little confusing, so let's see if we can wrap our heads around them. On one hand, you have Noah's posterity having daughters, okay? So, in this case, this would be Noah's granddaughters, and they are marrying the sons of men. Now, we've got to read a little bit into this. Uh, the scriptures will allow us to, don't worry. But the sons of men, as opposed to the sons of God. If you remember in Adam's account and in Enoch's account, and thus they could all become the sons of God. We were talking about sons of God by choice rather than simply by creation. When you, when you step into the family business, so to speak, when you, when you follow that righteous branch of the family tree, the one that's growing towards the light and away from the darkness, you choose to be a son of God. Well, if you don't choose, then what are you left with by default? Well, you're a son of man. In fact, remember Moses 1, when that's what, what uh, 
Satan is trying to get Moses to see himself as Moses, son of man. So here what you're what we're seeing right off the bat is sons of men, non-covenant makers, non-covenant keepers, trying to marry into this righteous, righteous line. And unfortunately, it's working. These granddaughters of Noah are marrying those outside the covenant. We'll see what a big deal that is as generation after generation goes on throughout the Old Testament. Marriage within the covenant is huge. You can actually see a hint of it in the very next verse, Moses 8:15. And the Lord said unto Noah, the daughters of thy sons have sold themselves. Now think about that phrase, to sell yourself. On the one hand, it suggests that you had oh, self-ownership to begin with. We, we typically can't sell something that we don't own to begin with. And so these daughters of, of Noah's posterity, these righteous daughters of the covenant, do have agency. They do have a measure of of choice in this matter, and yet they sell themselves to people that honestly have nothing to offer them. To think about the kind of dowry, so to speak, the, the kind of, well, we'll see it later when we, when we meet Jacob, for example. I will, I will work seven years to take Rachel to wife. We see the 10 camels that Abraham's servant offers in order for Isaac to marry Rebekah. What, what is being offered to you? Because if you, as you are in marriage, in, in a covenant relationship, as you are offering yourself to someone else, what are they offering to you? In temples, and we'll talk about, a lot about temples today, the, the sealing ordinance takes place at an altar. And altars are synonymous with sacrifice. What are we offering in that marriage covenant? And to see these daughters of the covenant sell themselves to those that have nothing covenant-wise to offer them in return. Like I said, we will see the difference that that choice makes throughout the rest of Israelite history. But in this context, back in verse 15, what made it so devastating for these daughters to sell themselves short is the following phrase. God continues, For behold, mine anger is kindled. There's that fire, that hot, uh, that needs to be put out by, by floodwaters again. Mine anger is kindled against the sons of men, for they will not hearken to my voice. Now, that is one of the defining problems among those outside the covenant. And we see it repeated throughout the story of Noah. That idea of not hearkening is found in verse 15 and 20 and 21 and 24. They just won't listen to God. Remember that was the problem in Enoch's day? Their ears are dull of hearing. Well, here they simply will not put enough faith or trust in God's appointed servants. They're, they're outside that covenant line. They're not in the family business. And so they are choosing darkness instead of light. They, they're leaning towards Cain instead of Abel. And sadly, they're dragging down these covenant daughters along with them. And worse yet, they're boasting in it. As Noah comes to cry repentance, as part of their not hearkening to that, listen to verse 21. After they had heard him, and, and ignored him. They came up before him saying, Behold, we are the sons of God. Now, uh, not quite. Remember, they were defined as sons of men already. Yes, they're sons of God by creation, but they are not sons of God by choice. So they're claiming divine lineage, but not honoring divine lifestyle. And they don't care. They feel immune to any negative consequences. So they say to Noah, Have we not taken unto ourselves the daughters of men? 
And are we not eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage? And our wives bear unto us children, and the same are mighty men, which are like unto men of old, men of great renown. And they hearken not unto the words of Noah. That one helps us understand a little bit more why they wouldn't hearken to Noah's words. They didn't care about consequence. It's like, look, everything's going on fine. We saw earlier in the, in the story of the fall that Satan's attack on agency really was an attack on accountability. Uh, choose whatever you want. Let's just avoid consequences. And that's exactly what these people are saying, almost kind of throwing in, in, in Noah's face. Oh, you keep telling us that we're going to have to pay the piper someday. But look, we're marrying and giving in marriage. We're eating and drinking. We're living normal lives and life goes on. There's no consequence. There's, there's no upcoming flood of consequence for the choices that we're making. If we were doing something wrong, then surely God would stop us. Hmm, there's some interesting foreshadowing of what is about to come. They're taking a delay in consequence as evidence for an absence of consequence. And that's a very dangerous thing to do. In fact, they're looking... I mean, Jesus taught this in the Sermon on the Mount. The, the rain falls on the just and the unjust, okay? Uh, it's not just that the wicked will, will suffer and the righteous will prosper. Uh, ultimately, that's the case. But in the meantime, it's a lot, more, it's a lot less black and white. Yet here they are saying, look, we're, ha we're even having children. God is sending us posterity. Uh, as if to guarantee our future. And look at them. They're men of renown, just like the men of old. So we, we obviously can't be doing anything wrong. By the way, Jesus himself would use that as an example to describe the last days. In Matthew 24, when he's describing the signs of the times, and he says this, Of that day and hour knoweth no man, no, not the angels of heaven, but my Father only. But as the days of Noah were, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days that were before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, language sound familiar, until the day that Noah entered into the ark and knew not until the flood came and took them all away, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. We still live in a day that divorces choice from consequence an agency from accountability. Give me all of the first and none of the second. We still live in a day that believes that it is possible to continually postpone having to pay the piper. The consequences will never actually come. We can always avoid them. We'll always get around it. There, there's, there's some way out. Well, there is, but it's repentance. It's hearkening to God's calls to change. But they, and sadly those in our day as well, are unwilling to do it. These types of people, again, Noah's day or our own, are simply the type that think they are big enough to, to avoid those kinds of consequences. Makes a little bit more sense when you read Moses 8, 18. And in those days, there were giants on the earth. We talked a little bit about that last week. And it, these Nephilim, these giants, large in stature, are we talking physical or are we talking in their own estimation? Or are we talking, again, Samson-like, I'm big enough to handle whatever problems I put myself into. Uh, I can get out of jail. I'm big enough. I'm strong enough to be able to, to handle things. And yet those kinds of self-proclaimed giants are exactly the ones that end up bind and blind and laugh, like we saw last week also. It's exactly what's happening here. If I go on in verse 18, these giants on the earth, more than just not hearkening, that was the first problem, it got worse. 
and they sought Noah to take away his life. So there we see them go from willful ignorance, I will not hearken, to, to outright anger and violence. Those are going to be some of the defining signs of the last days, wars and rumors of wars. Well, similar kinds of problems in, with corruption and violence taking place in Noah's day. Remember, the secret combination from Satan to Cain passed down from generation to generation to murder and get gain, there's violence and corruption. So, Moses 8.28, the earth was corrupt before God, and it was filled with violence. Or verse 29, and God looked upon the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted its way upon the earth. It's not doing what it was designed to do. It's been corrupted. It's not, it's not fulfilling the measure of its creation. Or the next verse, verse 30. And God said unto Noah, The end of all flesh is come before me, for the earth is filled with violence. And behold, I will destroy all flesh from off the earth. Talk about letting the punishment fit the crime. Or reaping what they've sown. Oh, you, you, want, to, you want to be violent. And you want to think you're strong enough, you giants out there, to avoid the consequences of your choice? Well, eventually you will be flooded with the results of your wickedness. And there is no giant tall enough to be able to outlast the rising floodwaters of your own sins. Violence being set out, there's the, the tide extending, and now it's going to come crashing back to haunt you. Since you didn't care about the value of the lives of others. Maybe you'll start caring when the life in danger is your own. I think you can sum up the entire flood of iniquity with this verse from Moses 8.22. And God saw that the wickedness of men had become great in the earth. And every man was lifted up in the imagination of the thoughts of his heart, being only evil continually. Think of those words, imagination and thoughts and heart. There's a fascinating verse in Micah, end of the Old Testament, where he says this. Woe to them that devise iniquity. Can I get that sense of imagination? They're coming up with creative ways to be sinful. They devise iniquity and work evil upon their beds. Can you picture them there lying awake at night, just kind of dreaming about the wicked things they can do? Keep going. When the morning is light, they practice it because it is in the power of their hand. Such a fascinating verse. Can you picture them? The power's in our hand. We can do anything we want. There's no consequence. There's no piper to pay. And so, of course, I can just lie awake at night dreaming of the possibilities that tomorrow will offer me to descend even deeper into my own sinful imagination. And there is a fascinating passage in D&C 123 when Joseph is languishing in Liberty Jail and he talks about the kind of wickedness that the saints are up against being so intense that it shocks even the devil that even he stands aghast uh, and, and his hands tremble and palsy. Now that might be hyperbole on Joseph's part. I don't know if there's any sin that we can come up with that goes beyond something that, that Satan couldn't devise on his own. But I think there is something true to that sense of, of evil that is so creative. That's, that's ironic, by the way, since sin is always destructive in nature. But such creative iniquity... That, that Satan himself is impressed with what we've come up with. I do think that describes our day. When there is sin that, that has, in some ways is unheard of, and yet people are coming up with it, the imagination of the thoughts of their hearts. 
are evil continually. No wonder the Lord says to Noah in verse 17, My spirit shall not always strive with man, for he shall know that all flesh shall die, yet his days shall be an hundred and twenty years, and if men do not repent, I will send in the floods upon them. In other words, there will be consequences. I'll send the floods in. These self-made or self-proclaimed giants that think they can outlive or outlast the consequences of their sin. In fact, I'll even shorten that. Maybe these uh, 900-year lifetimes that are described early in Genesis are such that people really do start to forget that a reckoning will eventually come. Here in this verse, let's make 120, about the max that any mere mortal will live. Let's push consequence a little closer to the time of choice. Until then, I will be wrestling with them. I will be striving with them. But the Spirit will not always strive with man. That was Mormon's language at the end of the Book of Mormon. As he feared that, strive is where strife, that word, comes from. It's this, this fighting and I think it's sad that often when the fight comes down between us and God, it's God that surrenders instead of us submitting. Where we force the, the Lord himself to wave the white flag and stop striving with us. There have been times I felt that with some of my own children when there's just this, this tension and I, and I won't hearken to your voice. And at times I've just said, look, my dukes are down I'm not going to fight you on this. The choice is yours to make. And here, sadly, the Spirit is getting to a point where I have to surrender to you since you won't surrender to the Lord. If you don't repent, then the flood of iniquity will bring a flood of consequence, and you will feel it. There will be no escaping. Now, that does suggest their, their escape route. There's repentance. And again, this flood of, of wickedness with its flood of consequence is always being combated with a flood of truth. As Adam, as Enoch, and now as Noah are crying repentance to these people, giving them an opportunity to change. Remember that verse from last week, Moses 7:27, where Enoch beheld angels descending out of heaven, bearing testimony of the Father and the Son. The Holy Ghost fell on many. They were caught up by the powers of heaven into Zion. These missions that took place before the flood were successful. We joked about that last week, that Noah's mission did not have a conversion problem. It had a retention problem. They just couldn't keep them here. They all got caught up to Zion. There's also this promise later in Moses 7 that God sent forth an unalterable decree that a remnant of Enoch's seed should always be found among all nations while the earth should stand. So think about how Moses 8 begins. And all the days of Enoch were 430 years. And it came to pass that Methuselah, the son of Enoch, was not taken. So he didn't get caught up by the powers of heaven into Zion. He, there was no beam me up uh, because I'm righteous. No, Methuselah had to stay. The verse goes on. He was not taken that the covenants of the Lord might be fulfilled, which he made to Enoch, for he truly covenanted with Enoch that Noah should be the fruit of his loins. That's where you see the continuation of the genealogy. From Enoch to Methuselah to Lamech to Noah. Makes me feel for Methuselah that he was not caught up, that he was held back. Held back so God could keep his covenant. I think sometimes you and I wrestle with being held back from certain blessings. 
whether it was a delay in marriage or in, in childbirth, whether it was a mission that you felt worthy of, of accepting and wanting to go on, and yet health concerns got in your way. There are so many different examples of, of times where it feels like, how come everyone else is, is getting caught up to heaven and I'm stuck here on earth? How come everyone else is moving forward along the covenant path when, when I'm trying to do everything I can to be righteous and the blessings just aren't coming my way? Well, maybe learn a lesson from Methuselah. And maybe God does have bigger plans in mind and more important promises that are waiting that you're part of a bigger picture. And by holding you back, he's actually moving the whole plan forward. I sometimes think of that with, with Nephi. Because this was in a time period where the, the Babylonians were, were taking the best of the Israelite youth. The kinds with the greatest potential. And bringing them back to Babylon, basically to Babylonify them. And they didn't take Nephi. They take Daniel and... Hananiah and Azariah and Mishael, more commonly known as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But they don't take Nephi, this man, this boy all large in stature, this, this little Nephilim. No, they didn't. And I wonder sometimes if Nephi felt like he was overlooked. Well, he wasn't. He had a more important mission to play, uh, to fulfill elsewhere. And Methuselah, don't feel less than because you weren't caught up. God is keeping promises, not only with you, but through you, promises he's made to other people. In fact, when Methuselah's son Lamech finally has a son and names him Noah, notice the, the meaning behind the name. Lamech called his name Noah, saying, This son shall comfort us concerning our work and toil of our hands because of the ground which the Lord had cursed. The name Noah comes from a word meaning rest, that word that tra is translated as comfort is a play on that name. And by the way, it can also mean to console oneself, to be sorry, to, to repent of something. Later on when it says that it repented the Lord, that, that wickedness was so far spread upon the earth, it's that, same, that play on the same word. And so this, this comfort is going to come to the world through Noah and Methuselah, Somebody's got to stay behind to give birth to a Lamech and raise him in righteousness so he can give birth to a Noah and raise him in righteousness too. I promised Enoch that his posterity would remain as one righteous remnant, one lone holdout against this, this flood of sin that is rising from every direction. No wonder Noah lived up to that responsibility. No wonder he, he fulfilled the mission that was given him. My grandpa was held back for this. My father raised me for this. I am part of the family business, the righteous line, and I will make a difference. He chose to and succeeded. In Moses 8.27, Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Noah was a just man. He was perfect in his generation, and he walked with God. That phrase ring a bell? It's what was used to describe Enoch. You and me and I and you, so walk with me. Noah did. And so did his sons, Shem and Ham and Japheth. Now there's some other phrases in Moses 8 that describe this, this righteous line. The exceptions to the rules of wickedness that were all around them. How about verse 13? Noah and his sons hearkened unto the Lord and gave heed. And they were called the sons of God. 
And this is children by choice, not merely by creation. This is a family who chose to hearken, to hear. Surrounded by a society, influenced by a culture that didn't care about the commandments of God. Noah stood out against that and hearkened and raised his sons to do likewise. In verse 16, it came to pass that Noah prophesied and taught the things of God even as it was in the beginning. Remember that, that word prophesy was, kept coming up when we went through the genealogy from Adam through Seth all the way down to Enoch? That's part of the family business. And the ultimate prophecy was what? Repentance. When, when Enoch taught the fourth article of faith, when Adam taught those same principles, faith, repentance, baptism, Holy Ghost, well, again, Noah is stepping into that family business and teaching his posterity and the people all around him those same true principles. Verse 19, And the Lord ordained Noah after his own order, and commanded him that he should go forth and declare his gospel unto the children of men, even as it was given unto Enoch. This isn't just the Lord barking out orders. It's the Lord inviting Noah into his order, the order of priesthood, the order of the Son of God. Talk about being inducted into the family business. This is what we do. We cry repentance. We teach the gospel, the good news that Adam was taught by the angel first thing after the fall from Eden. To be able to understand the role of this righteous remnant is to send the good news to everyone else, to flood the earth with righteousness and truth so that it doesn't have to be flooded with water or fire. Now, so much of what I just said probably seems obvious to, to we Latter-day Saints because we're part of that family business too. We are called to go cry repentance to the whole world. But here's the irony. I've been quoting solely from the book of Moses so far. And Moses 8 is the Joseph Smith translation of what we would, what we would have seen in Genesis chapter 6, the story of Noah. And yet, you know what's missing from, from Genesis 6? Moses preaching anything at all. It's shocking. Uh, when you only read Genesis and don't have the added benefit of the Joseph Smith translation, uh, yes, there's wickedness all over, and there's still the violence and the corruption. There's still the selling of self. There's still the, the marriage outside of the covenant. But there's no hint that Noah tried to make a difference in that, other than, well, let's build an ark and save ourselves and the animals. And that's, that's so ironic. Years ago, I was reading a book uh, by a, a, a group of scholars uh, that were having kind of a roundtable discussion about the book of Genesis. And it was so interesting. This is what kind of first woke me up to, wait, he, he doesn't preach in Genesis? He only preaches in, in Moses? That's, that was, this came as a surprise to me. But one scholar said this, I come away thinking Noah is a wimp. It seems to me that he's a good man, but we never hear from him. He has to be encouraged to get on the ark. He has to be nudged along. And he's rather anonymous. And there's another scholar that chimes in and says, well, my quarrel with Noah is that he doesn't ask God about the other people. God says to him, build an ark and save your family. And unlike Abraham, who argued with God to save the people of Sodom and Gomorrah, Noah doesn't try to save anybody. Now that blew me away. But in a way, I guess I can't chasing them too hard, because if all they have is Genesis, that's kind of all you get. A sort of an every man for himself, and glad I got the news, and I'm glad I'm listening, and so I can save myself. 
that that is not Noah. In fact, those scholars should have known better if they were confined to, even without the help of, of Moses. Don't just confine yourself to Genesis. Fast forward to the New Testament and Peter drops a hint that I guess has gone unnoticed by the rest. Peter says this, God spared not the old world, but saved Noah the eighth person. And then notice how Peter describes Noah. A preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood upon the world of the ungodly. Did you catch that? According to Peter, and what sources must he have had, Noah was a preacher of righteousness. That's what this righteous line did. It's how they defined themselves. If that's God's work and glory, then it's going to be our work and glory too. And we will prophesy. We will teach faith in God and in his promised Messiah. We will repent of our sins, knowing that there are consequences a-coming. Based on what we know from the book of, of Moses, add to that baptism and the reception of the Holy Ghost. Add to that calling upon God in the name of his only begotten. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ as taught from the very beginning, as confirmed with a holy ordinance. And along, as it got passed down through that righteous line, it came to Noah and Noah engaged in it. He was a preacher of righteousness just like everyone else. Noah was not content simply to live righteously, raise righteous children, and then wash his hands of responsibility for anyone else that was out there. No, he took his role seriously when it came to leading other people to righteousness. It's one of the things that amazed me most about watching one of my younger brothers-in-law when he was in college. He, by the way, was also a Methuselah of sorts that was held back from the blessing of marriage for longer than he wanted so that he could bless a whole lot of other people along the way. And when it came to, he's the kind of roommate I wish I had been in college. In college, I tried to do what was right, and thankfully I had amazing roommates, and they chose to do what was right all, uh, themselves also. But it wasn't because I was pushing them to, or even inviting them to. It was sort of an every, every man for himself spirituality. Thankfully, we just all happened to be spiritual. Looking at my brother-in-law's uh, roommate situation, he was surrounded by good people too, but part of it was because he led the way uh, and made sure that he was was engaging people and involving people in the righteous practices that he was holding himself to. Again, I, I look back with regret at my own college years once I saw how it could have been done better. And, and seeing him call his roommates together for apartment prayer and apartment scripture study, it was, it was like mission 2.0. This is what we did in the mission field. Why would we stop now? And I've always been impressed by that. Uh, he, he hasn't changed a bit since then, and he's still rallying the troops toward righteousness. Uh, that, was, that was Noah. He wasn't a wimp, as was described. He wasn't self-absorbed in his own spirituality. He was trying to make a difference in the world around him. They just wouldn't let him succeed. In Moses 8, verse 20, it came to pass that Noah called upon the children of men that they should repent, but they hearkened not unto his words. In short, Noah tried. He succeeded with some, and they were caught up to Zion. The rest simply would not listen to his invitation. And yet, did he give up? According to the dates in Scripture, it seems like he, he, it was 120 years he spent building this ark, and 120 years he spent crying repentance right along with it. Moses 8, again, helps us make sense of his message. 
Verse 23, it came to pass that Noah continued his preaching unto the people, saying, hearken, give heed unto my words. I don't care if you haven't listened up to this point, there's still time to change. So please do. More specifically, verse 24, believe and repent of your sins and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, even as our fathers. Same message as Adam, same message as Enoch. And ye shall receive the Holy Ghost, that ye may have all things made manifest. And if ye do not this, the floods will come in upon you. And then the sad conclusion. Nevertheless, they hearkened not. It's here in verse 25 then that we see Noah's name kick in. Not just in terms of trying to comfort his righteous line, that God's work will continue, but also being in need of that comfort because of the sorrow of brought on by sinfulness all around him. And it repented Noah. There's that play on words. And his heart was pained that the Lord had made man on the earth, and it grieved him at the heart. In the Genesis version, it's the Lord who repents for having made man, who feels sad and sorrowful that, that humanity is here. No, we know, we know that there is sorrow there. He is the God who weeps, as he introduced himself to us last week. But it is Noah, this son of comfort, that is also a son of sorrow, repenting because the people wouldn't repent, sorrowing because there was no godly sorrow among his listeners. So what's the consequence? Well, there would be a flood of consequences. Verse 26, the Lord says to Noah, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beasts and the creeping things and the fowls of the air, for it repenteth Noah that I have created them and that I have made them. And he hath called upon me, for they have sought his life. Now, it was Noah's unhearkening hearers that were trying to seek his life, not the animal kingdom. Why, why take it out on them too? Well, in some ways, what God is doing is rebooting the entire system. He is starting over again. And Noah, I, you are going to be a second Adam after this second fall of humanity. And we are going to begin again with you and this righteous remnant and there's all kinds of parallels between Noah and Adam that we'll see as we move forward. Now, it is interesting uh, that, according to the Moses version, that, that flooding the earth with water was not the first thing that God tried to bring people to their senses and help uh, force the consequences a little closer to their eyes. In Moses 8.4, it says, There came forth a great famine into the land. The Lord cursed the earth with a sore curse, and many of the inhabitants thereof died. Now, famine usually comes by not enough rain. So on the one side, we're going to get not enough rain, and then on the other side, we're going to get too much rain. Either, either time, God is trying to, to bring consequences a little closer to their attention in hopes that they'll wake up and change, repent. I mean, we saw this in Helaman when Nephi is given the sealing power and he seals the heavens in hopes that a famine will, will bring people to their knees in repentance. Similar thing happened in the Old Testament in the days of Elijah. Well, God tries famine first and flood second. Remember in Doctrine and Covenants 43, this alarm clock that God sets. And sometimes it's the voice of justice and sometimes it's the voice of mercy. And he tries everything in between. 
with tempest and lightning and thunder and, in this case, famine and flood, anything he can think of in hopes of bringing us to our knees in repentance. Well, the famine didn't work. So as he warned Enoch back last week, the fire of mine indignation is kindled against them. In my hot displeasure will I send in the floods upon them. Now, all that talk of fire and heat, no wonder water was needed to, to put it all out. And in that context, don't think of, don't, don't try to sue God for malpractice. This is not him just venting and getting, getting his anger out of his system. No, this is the same God we met last week who is weeping over the wickedness of the world. Remember, Enoch himself compares those tears to the rain upon the mountains. This is a flood of sorrow since they had no sorrow for their sins. Now, in some ways, the, the flood was an incredible act of justice on God's part. The people had brought upon themselves death. On the other hand, the flood was also an incredible act of mercy. Now, mercy to whom? Well, on the one hand, if, as we know the doctrine of premortality, merciful to every son and daughter of God that had not yet become a son or daughter of man. I mean, can you imagine the scene in premortality? Whoever's next up for their turn on earth, and they look down and they see wickedness prevailing upon the earth. You see all of these sons of men taking the daughters of God and, and those daughters selling themselves for naught. You see violence and, and corruption prevail upon the earth. You see uh, a, a complete unwillingness to hearken to the commandments of God, a, a complete unwillingness to repent of sins, and, and now all of a sudden the consequences are staring them in the face. I don't want to go join a family like that. In fact, as I'm peering down from above, I can picture myself going, God, I, I'm not going, well, except on one condition. If you can send me to Noah's line, because otherwise I don't think I can make it. I always get a chuckle of that scene in the Christmas story when Ralphie had just seen Santa and is going to go down the slide and, and all of a sudden he realizes he didn't ask for what he wanted most. And so he just turns around and is like white knuckling the, talk of, the top of the slide and say, I, I won't get sent down until I ask for this. And I just picture all of us in pre-mortality. Anyone that was about to come to earth at that point, white knuckling the top of the slide. God, I have to ask one thing for my own self-preservation. If you're going to send me, please don't send me to anyone but Noah. It's the only chance I have. Elder Maxwell, in fact, said that God intervened in this flood episode when corruption had reached an agency-destroying point, that spirits could not in justice be sent here. Think about that for a second. Agency is an eternal principle. But if there's no option to choose what's right, if, if wickedness has gotten so intense that there seems to be a no escape from it, then no wonder they were white-knuckling the slide. Please, only to, only to Noah. And I pictured the first person who, gets, who had that bright idea, and then it, pretty soon it's starting to spread uh, all around premortality. As people are like, yeah, 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 I, I, sing with me. I want what he wants. I only want to go where she's going. I, I, please do not send me to earth if, if I can't go to Noah's posterity. And I just picture God smiling and going, well, the, I, that can be arranged. All of you? Only through Noah? Well... As a second Adam, we can make that happen. 
In fact, it would have been unjust to do otherwise. In mercy to them, God does send them all through Noah's line. I would also say, borrowing from John Taylor, that it was even merciful for the victims of the flood. Now again, if we don't understand life before this life, then that perspective on God's mercy is unavailable to us. Same is true if we don't understand truth about life after this life. If we're stuck with this life only, then cleaning the slate is deplorable. That just ended their entire existence. But since this life is not all we get, then it was merciful of God to stop them where they were, to give them a change of venue. And let's pick up where we left off in the spirit world before things get worse. John Taylor put it this way, this antediluvian people, it's just a big word that means before the flood, were not only very wicked themselves, but having the power to propagate their species, in other words, they could have their own children, they transmitted their unrighteous natures and desires to their children and brought them up to indulge in their own wicked practices. And the spirits that dwelt in the eternal worlds knew this, and they knew very well that to be born of such parentage would entail upon themselves an infinite amount of trouble, misery, and sin. That's the part we already talked about. Is it right that a just God should sweep off so many people? Is that in accordance with mercy? Well, President Taylor said, yes. It was just to those spirits that had not received their bodies. And it was just and merciful too to those people guilty of the iniquity. Why? Because by taking away their earthly existence, he prevented them from entailing their sins upon their posterity and degenerating them and also prevented them from committing further acts of wickedness. We need to end things right here before they get worse. This life is not your only opportunity to learn and to change. That takes place in the spirit world as well. So let's get you there and begin again. I'm beginning again on earth. I'll begin again with you in the spirit world. In fact, remember last week when we saw that hinted at from Moses 7? Behold, these which thine eyes are upon shall perish in the floods. And behold, I will shut them up. A prison have I prepared for them. Now, that might seem like really bad news. They're in a prison. But we understand what's, what's happening in that prison. A prison whose doors would be flung wide open with the crucifixion and resurrection of Christ. Again from Moses 7, where Enoch sees that day of the coming of Christ. And he says, as many of the spirits as were in prison came forth and stood on the right hand of God. It's the only two times in Moses 7 the word prison is mentioned. The prison where the, the flood victims go and the prison that Christ empties in triumph. Now with that, again, go back to Peter. Peter will help us with this. For Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit, by which also he went and preached unto the spirits in prison. This is one of those, those key texts that we use whenever we teach people about work for the dead and temple work, and what happens in the spirit world. But let Peter go on. Because as he's describing the dead who are there in spirit prison, waiting to be taught and waiting to be redeemed through Jesus Christ, he could have used any number of examples, right? If you want a poster child for the dead in prison, there's lots of, op lots of options, okay? We've got plenty of people that have passed away. But of all the people he could have chosen, who does he pick? 
the spirits in prison, which sometimes were disobedient when once the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was a preparing, wherein few, that is, eight souls, were saved by water. Then he has this interesting phrase, the like figure whereunto even baptism doth also now save us. Now, what's he getting at with that? Peter just taught us an incredible thing. In some ways, it's further evidence for baptism for the dead, like we see in 1 Corinthians 15, that little hint that Paul dropped. But what Peter's getting at is he's comparing the, the ark to baptism. And he's saying, you know, there aren't that many people, uh, relatively speaking, who are going to be baptized by water and saved in this life because of it. The fraction of God's children that will actually find the fullness of the gospel is very small. Just like it was in Noah's day in terms of the fraction of humanity that, that made it onto the ark. Only eight souls. A figure that he then likens, a like figure, to, to the, the challenge of baptism. Now, that's especially true in Peter's day, right? When missionaries are going out and doing all that they can, but talk about a tiny minority of, of the world's population. Well, how many people are actually going to be saved by baptism? Well, how many people were actually saved in the ark? Relatively speaking, not many. But that's not, the full, that's not the full picture of God's plan. Death is not the end. It's simply a transfer from one side of the veil to the other. And just like work goes on on this side, work goes on on that side. And therefore, Christ is going to preach to the spirits in prison, including those that were disobedient when Noah was crying repentance and preparing the ark. It's amazing that they would be his poster children for second chances. Perhaps your agency has been impinged upon by parents who weren't very intentional in their parenting. God will take all of that into consideration. He grades on the ultimate curve as he bends justice around mercy without ever breaking it. It's incredible how he can do that. Only through his grace is that possible. The spirit world is still part of our earthly probation. Any, to anyone who lost a loved one on a bad day, spiritually speaking, final judgment has not been passed. And even if they are in the, the prison side of the spirit world, the doors of paradise are not forever locked to them. Remember what we studied at the end of last year in DNC 138 and Joseph F. Smith's incredible vision of the redemption of the dead. Uh, building off of what we just read from Peter, that's what he was pondering as, he, as his vision unfolded. In verse 32 of that section, thus was the gospel preached to those who had died in their sins or in transgression, having rejected the prophets. Describe the people that wouldn't hearken to the voice of Noah. Noah was mentioned by name in DNC 138, among those ministers who continued their ministry in the world of spirits. To me, there's something so beautifully fitting about Noah being able to continue his mission with the same audience. Again, couple Moses 7 and 8 with 1 Peter 3 and DNC 138, and you see just how merciful our Father in heaven is to tie up all these loose ends and bring these people back together to give everyone second chances. Talk about compassionate closure here. My hope in, in explaining these things is, 
is to defend the God of the flood from accusations of, of anger and retribution, of, of vengeance, when this was an act of mercy and justice, one that was met with tears of his own that were flooding the world. As he says in the book of Ezekiel, Have I any pleasure at all that the wicked should die, saith the Lord God, and not that he should return from his ways and live? And in case that rhetorical question didn't have an obvious enough answer, I'll give it to you later on in the book of Ezekiel. Very clearly he says, As I live, saith the Lord God. So there's oath language. I'm swearing on my own existence. I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. So turn ye, turn ye from your evil ways. Why will ye die, O house of Israel? That's the voice of the God who weeps. That is the voice of the God who calls Noah and his ancestors and his posterity down to this very day to cry repentance. Turn ye, turn ye, Israel. That's just the word for repent. And Noah is hearkening to that call and pleading with people for 120 years. Please change. Some did and were caught up to heaven, to paradise. (laughs) Others did not, but were caught up to prison with a promise of paradise yet ahead for them if they would simply repent of their sins. I pray that you and I, as we wrestle with these things, can, can stay in the Goldilocks zone. Not too hot where we think that God is vengeful and is just looking for a way to wipe everyone out, but not too cold to the point that thinking, oh, it'll all come out in the wash and there's no need to repent. The Goldilocks zone is defined by our own repentance. That's when we've proven the contrary correctly. I know I must repent. God's justice tells me so. But I know that I can repent. God's mercy reassures me of that. Now, perhaps the greatest example of that mercy is the ark. As God commands Noah not just to cry repentance, but also to construct an ark wherein those who will hearken to his voice can be saved. For this, we can go back to the Genesis account. Because here is where the Moses story ends. And we're, we're back to Genesis, where God commands Noah to build an ark of gopher wood and pitch, whatever that is, some kind of sticky substance oh, to, to caulk the holes and spaces between the gopher, the gopher wood planks. We're going to come back to both the wood and the pitch in a moment. But I want to wrestle with this idea of the ark, because to me there is great symbolism here. We said already that our day parallels Noah's day in terms of a flood of wickedness that's going to bring a flood of consequence and that is being combated with a flood of truth that God is still sending upon a world that he's holding out hope for. To me, what could that ark represent that God is inviting us all into in hopes of helping us rise above the wickedness of the world? Well, it could be the church. The church is often described uh, in in nautical terms uh, as a boat, the good ship Zion, for example. Our home should definitely be an ark where we can come in and and feel safe here from the outside influences. But there's one other 
and there's others. The covenant could be our ark. It's, it's any kind of refuge. It's any kind of sanctuary. And perhaps with that, you're thinking of the same one that I, that I really gravitate toward. You see, when I was a brand new uh, endowed member of the church, I just got my mission call, I'd received my endowment, and the temple became, oh, I just wanted to understand everything there was to know about it. I'd go off and, and just try to unpack the symbolic language of the endowment and try to make sense of what God was trying to teach me there. Not only was the temple a place of such new understanding, but the scriptures became new to me as well. Things that I'd never considered temple-focused all of a sudden, I saw it because I knew what I was looking for. Uh, through most of my years of scripture study, I've had different colors to, to mean different things and kind of color coding all kinds of possibilities in scripture. I'd never had a temple color because I didn't think it was necessary. I mean, yeah, Jesus talks, cleanses the temple and talks about the temple every once in a while. And yeah, the temple bring, comes up so, pretty often in the Doctrine and Covenants, but I didn't think it deserved its own color until I'd been through the temple. And then it felt like the scriptures were a brand new book to me with temple on almost every page. I had to get a, a new color. I picked purple, that royal color, uh, to signify the, the house of God. But I was blown away with how frequently the temple would come up in places I'd never imagined. Well, during that same year before my mission, I went back, I decided to start the scriptures over again and just look for the temple. I was gonna start in Genesis chapter one and just keep an eye out for the temple wherever I might happen upon it. Uh, symbolically as well as literally. Well, by the time I got to Genesis chapter 6, where the flood story begins, I didn't expect to see any temples anywhere, but I just had this impression from the Holy Ghost that just said, the ark is the temple. And I remember thinking, in my literalist mind, no, it's not. We don't bring animals into the temple. It, it, it was a big boat that just floated above the, the floodwaters and then came down uh, once the floods subsided. And then it was like, well, wait a minute. Is there, is there something deeper than that? And so, based on just that little impression, I wrote at the top of my page in Genesis 6, Ark equals temple. And didn't exactly know what I'd find there, but I trusted the Spirit's whisper and said, okay, well, let's look. I was blown away with just how many parallels there are between the ark and the temple. I'm not even going to give them all to you. Uh, so if you want to go through Genesis 6 through 9 looking for anything that bears a hint and points you towards God's holy house, then maybe you'll want to mark that in purple too. Let me give you some though. For example, in Genesis 6:15, Noah was given exact measurements this many cubits long and wide and high. And it's interesting that so often temples are built according to very specific specifications, typically revealed by God. We saw that in the Doctrine and Covenants with the Kirtland Temple. We saw it, we'll see it in the Tabernacle of Moses and the Temple of Solomon. Uh, my dad's uncle was the architect who designed the San Diego Temple and he said never did he feel more inspired on a project than in building God's house. This is how it needs to be. I think he built a masterpiece. Or how about verse 16? A window shalt thou make to the ark. Now that's the only time that word appears in the Old Testament. There it is translated window. But throughout the rest of the Old Testament, whenever windows are mentioned, they don't use that term. There's a different word that's more obviously window. Here it's simply this, this word that that we're not totally sure what's the best way to translate it. 
In fact, uh, whenever that word appears elsewhere, it's typically defined as noon or midday. So there's something about midday brilliance that is described here. If you look at the footnote, it says that some rabbis believed it was a precious stone that shone in the ark. Sound like the brother of Jared? Uh, his 16 stones touched by the finger of God to bring illumination into their arks, what brought them to their promised land? I think there's incredible symbolism for the temple there as a place of such brilliant light, the, a noonday sun, a midday glory. To understand what God is trying to give us there, this, this flood of illumination, whatever this window happened to be in the ark, there are windows of heaven through which God pours out blessings to us. And the temple is one of the brightest examples of that. Also in verse 16, it describes the ark as having three stories in it, with lower, second, and third stories shalt thou make it. I couldn't help but just think about celestial and terrestrial and celestial levels within the temple, as God is trying to point us heavenward and homeward. In verse 18, but with thee will I establish my covenant, and thou shalt come into the ark, thou and thy sons and thy wife and thy sons' wives with thee. Hmm. So the ark, what brought you into the ark? This was part of the covenant God was making. And it had to do with couples. It was Noah and his wife. It was his sons and their wives. In the temple, it's where we make covenants with God and with one another. It's in the temple that God can make the family eternal. He can keep the family afloat. Again, what was it that kept some people from hearkening to Noah and entering the ark to begin with? These were, these were daughters of God and sons of men. This was marrying outside of the covenant without the opportunity to receive the promises that, that God makes to us only within his holy house. In verse 19, of every living thing of all flesh, two of every sort shalt thou bring into the ark to keep them alive with thee. They shall be male and female. Again, it's this preservation of life but also this continuation of life. I want to preserve your life. Come in and receive these blessings for you. But also male and female, husband and wife, being able to perpetuate the seed, the covenant that God is making with, with humanity, the same he's making with us in his temple. Preservation and continuation of the lives, kind of the blessings that he was promising back in DNC 132. How about verse 22? Thus did Noah according to all that God commanded him. So did he. There's evidence of one who is living the law of obedience. And again, what is it that allows us entrance to God's ark, God's house, his temple? A promise to keep his laws, to keep his commandments. Move on to chapter 7. And the, the parallels continue. Verse 1, The Lord said unto Noah, Come thou and all thy house into the ark. For thee have I seen righteous before me in this generation. Remember we saw that phrase back in the Moses version that Moses had found grace in the sight of God. He and his, and his children, that they, they walked with God. Oh, there are standards of worthiness and righteousness to enter God's house, just as there were to enter God's ark. Will we hearken? Will we repent? Will we live up to those expectations? How about verse 16? And they that went in 
went in male and female of all flesh, as God had commanded him. We've talked about that, that couple connection in the temple already. But then this phrase, and the Lord shut him in. What's another way to say that? As a young 19-year-old, as I was looking at that, he shut them in. It's like he sealed them in the ark. Hmm. That seems fitting. To, for God to invite us into his house and to close us in, to bring us into his bosom, into that embrace, to seal us his, and to seal us to one another. Oh, I would love to be shut into the temple. No desire to ever leave. Now, verse 17, the flood was 40 days upon the earth. The waters increased and bare up the ark, and it was lift up above the earth. This is such a powerful symbol of cleansing and purity that 40 would become synonymous with that. When Moses is 40 years in the wilderness trying to purify the people and prepare them for entrance into the promised land. Well, that, again, 40 is, or a 40-day fast for Jesus, or a 40-day fast for Moses on Sinai, or Elijah. 40 becomes this great symbol of purification. And I don't know of a better embodiment architecturally of that purification than the temple. To rise above all things, it's exactly what the temple is for. No wonder they're described as mountains of the Lord. To be lift up above the earth. When the floodwaters finally prevailed over the mountains, what was the highest point on earth? It was the ark. And to think of the temple as the place of greatest, not just illumination, but elevation. And there we are prevailing upon the waters, this place of purity. Or verse 23, And Noah only remained alive, and they that were with him in the ark. To think about nothing outside the temple being preserved eternally. Again, there was strong language last year in DNC 132 about all covenants and contracts and bonds and oaths and obligations. Remember, he's legalese trying to cut off loopholes. Anything that's outside of God's law and word, outside of his temple, outside of his authority, will be thrown down. That our covenants cannot survive unless they are entered into in the house of God. And God is not trying to keep people out of the ark. He's doing everything he possibly can for over a century worth of effort and patience, inviting them in. We're doing the same. When people sometimes complain about, oh, well, no one can enter the temple. We've talked about this before. The story of Jairus and his daughter, and only faith is allowed in. To, to believe what is being promised there. To believe about the, uh, the consequences of what happens outside. God is trying to bring us into his house. He's trying to invite us into the ark. And then one last thing, my favorite example. This one came as such a gift from the Holy Ghost because at the, I don't know Hebrew. Uh, at the time, I knew even less than I know now, and I don't know much now. I know just enough how to work my way through a, uh, a lexicon and a Bible dictionary and online resources to make sense of Hebrew, and there are some beautiful insights that can come as a result. Uh, my hat goes off to those that spend years and years to truly master the language. Us, us amateurs are at the, at the mercy of, of computer helps, but they are incredibly helpful. And this one came as such a gift. Now, at the time this hit me, there was still no internet invented. 
that came out on my mission. I came back and like every commercial ended with WWW. I'm like, who's the W guy who owns the world now? Well, this was the year before my mission. But I just purchased a computer program that had all of the scriptures on it, including links to all the Hebrew and the Old Testament and all the Greek and the New Testament. And I was just having some fun, kind of taking it out of the box and put it on, doing a test drive. I just went to Genesis 6 and, and figured, well, I want to just click on one of these words and see what the Hebrew was. Now, I had no idea what it would be or if it would mean anything, but I happened to across the verse that talks about gopher wood and pitch. Now, again, literally speaking, you're going to need wood and you're going to need something to make it oh, seaworthy. Okay, some kind of asphalt, some kind of tar, some kind of pitch. Well, that's what the word they used to coat it so that the water we kept out. Now, I wasn't thinking too hard about this, but I started to. Because I happened to look at that word pitch, and I'm like, huh, I wonder what that means. Now, wood floats. It rises above the water. Now, remember when we were studying the creation accounts, and we talked about dry land being separated, divided from the water? And that water, especially in, in the ancient Near East, in Mesopotamian religions, was a symbol of chaos. And so to have good, solid gospel ground rise up and out of the currents of culture, the chaos of the world? Well, wood, how do we build our temple? How do we build ourselves in such a way that we can rise above the wickedness or the chaos of the world? Well, wood is one. To think about Jesus as a carpenter, someone who works with wood, someone, in fact, who was nailed to a wooden cross, and through his sacrifice allows us to rise above the wickedness of the world. Jesus himself could walk upon the water, that's impossible for us mere mortals, but wasn't for Jesus. There was something about his, his buoyancy, something about his divinity that allowed him to rise above those things. He was wood of the holiest kind. But again, if you're building a boat, it's not the wood alone that is sufficient. There has to be, there's no way to connect the wood well enough that the water will stay out. We have to figure out a way to pitch it. Now, this is where that, that computer program blew my mind. Because as I was just kind of skimming through the scripture on the screen to like, oh, what word do I want to click on and see what the Hebrew was? Not that I'll get anything out of it, because I, I don't know what the, what the Hebrew means beyond what it was already translated at. Well, I stumbled across that verse about wood and pitch, and I clicked on pitch to see what it meant. And it was just a word that didn't mean anything to me until I started digging deeper into the word. Now, to help make sense of this, compare it to a different ark that we'll see when we get to the book of Exodus. When Moses was placed into an ark of bulrushes uh, that his parents had made to float him down the Nile, hopefully to safety. Now, that ark of bulrushes also had to be pitched. Uh, and so the words are, are the same in English. That in both Noah's case and Moses' case, there was an ark and it was pitched in order to keep the water out. But when you look at the, the ark of Moses, the word that's used for pitch just means some kind of sticky substance. It's like a tar, asphalt kind of a thing that you can use to daub these bulrushes and make sure that it's watertight. Well, same thing would have happened with uh, with Noah's Ark as well. But it didn't use that word. It didn't use the normal word 
for, for tar. It used a much more vague term just for covering. If you look at the original Hebrew there, it says that, that Noah built an ark out of a gopher wood and that he pitched it within and without with pitch. The original Hebrew would say he covered it within and without with a covering. It doesn't get any more specific than that. But you remember when we talked about the coat of skins that God made for Adam and Eve to cover their nakedness? And whenever a covering is given in the Old Testament, that word, kafar, which means to cover, is the word that's used throughout the Old Testament for atonement. And as I wrestled with that as a a punk 19-year-old that didn't know anything, I was blown away with the realization that what keeps the water out of our lives is the atonement of Jesus Christ. It's the only thing that can do it. That when the ark was covered with a covering covering on the inside and on the outside. It was atoned for. It was covered. And, And like I said, keep an eye out for things that cover. The lid of the Ark of the Covenant. The coats of skins to cover nakedness. The pitch that covered the Ark in order to allow it to rise above the wickedness of the world. No amount of of good construction will be sufficient. We are completely reliant upon the grace of God through the atonement of Christ to keep the water out of our lives. There's no other way to rise above it. And so to me, one of the greatest symbols that the ark gives to us is how it points us to more than the temple, but the author of the temple, the designer of the temple, the one that allows the temple to be a holy place. Because he cocks every crack, he daubs every gap, he covers us, he covers his holy house, and all who enter therein with the atonement. I am so grateful for that realization and pray that it may stick, pun intended, so that as you and I ponder the story of the flood and the ark that God gave as, as an act of mercy, to Noah and to anyone who would enter in when all is said and done the only thing that keeps the water out of our lives is the atonement of Jesus Christ seek that covering above all else now with that in place the ark served its purpose Noah and his family those eight souls relatively few as well as all of creation itself hunkered down into those compartments on those three stories, ready to begin again, ready for God to give the earth itself a second chance with a new Adam, a new creation. We start to see that in chapter 8, and notice the language and how it points to that new Eden. So verse 1, and God remembered Noah and every living thing, and God made a wind to pass over the earth and the waters assuaged. Now, remember wind in Hebrew also means breath and spirit? Remember back in Genesis 1 when the creation account that it was the Spirit of God that moved upon the waters? Ah, that's that's how creation began. God's Spirit moving across the chaos and bringing order out of it. This is the breath of life being breathed into, into matter 
to bring life into Adam and Eve. And now this same wind, the same breath, the same spirit, now bringing life to this new creation. In verse 4, the ark rested in the seventh month. Hmm, a time of rest on this seventh period. Verse 5, the first thing that was to be seen was the tops of the mountains. Now, of course, that's literal. As the waters descend, the first thing to poke out will be the mountaintops. Like we said before, if the ark is the temple, there's the mountain of the Lord. And if Eden was this high point where the rivers flow out of Eden, well, there's the mountain of the Lord as well, that original mountaintop. In verses 8 through 12, as the waters are receding, but Noah is still unsure, is, are we ready to go out into this new, this new made Eden? Are we ready to, to stake a claim in God's second creation? At first he sends out a raven, but then he sends out a dove. These are in seven-day periods, so let me try again, a new beginning each week. And he sends out a dove. Well, doves have become a symbol of peace. A new creation, a place of peace, paradisiacal glory. That's what millennial reign will be. And the second time the dove goes out, it brings back an olive leaf, which also is another symbol of peace. God is trying to begin again a new creation, a peaceful paradise. No sin, no death. We're back in Eden. How about verse 13? It came to pass in the 600th and first year, in the first month, the first day of the month, the waters were dried out from off the earth. Can we get any more obvious that this is meant to be a new beginning? That land is emerging from the waters of chaos, and we might as well call it first in, in, in every respect. Time for New Year's resolutions for humanity. In verse 17, bring forth with thee every living thing, Noah's told, that they may breed abundantly in the earth and be fruitful and multiply upon the earth. Now in the next chapter, chapter 9, when Noah and his family come out too, they're told the same thing, be fruitful and multiply. Exactly what Adam and Eve were told in the Garden of Eden, along with all of creation with them. We really are beginning again. In verse 20, Noah builded an altar unto the Lord. And took of every clean beast and of every clean fowl and offered burnt offerings on the altar. We saw earlier that they are living the law of obedience to enter the ark. Well, now as they emerge from it, they are living the law of sacrifice. Just as Adam and Eve did as they emerged from Eden into this new world. We still need to be reminded of the promise of Jesus Christ. And do sacrifice in similitude of his offering knowing that only through him will we be able to be saved. Then in verse 21, the Lord smelled a sweet savor from that sacrifice. And the Lord said in his heart, I will not again curse the ground any more for man's sake. For the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth, neither will I again smite any more every living thing as I have done. Instead, he goes on, while the earth remaineth, seed time and harvest and cold and heat and summer and winter and day and night, shall not cease. Noah, I'm ready to try again. Are you? I'll continue my work in the spirit world among those that are there, but I want to continue, I want you to continue my work here on earth. From this point forward, there's no going back. There's only going forward. There's an echo from Eden also. 
from this moment forward, seed time, harvest, cold heat, summer, winter, day, night, righteousness, wickedness, it's all going to, to continue on. I'll never again destroy the earth with a flood. This is our do-over that will never be done over again. Which means this family tree, this family business has to go on. And since a flood of water will never occur again, the flood of truth will have to suffice to point people in a divine direction. Now this covenant becomes crystal clear in chapter 9 of Genesis, where God speaks to Noah and to his sons and says this, And I behold I. There's this focus on, uh, this is me speaking, okay? I will do it, that repetition. I establish my covenant with you and with your seed after you and with every living creature that is with you, of the fowl, of the cattle, of every beast of the earth with you from all that go out of the ark to every beast of the earth. So this is worldwide. You are just the personification, the, the recipient of this covenant. And I will establish my covenant with you. Here it is. Neither shall all flesh be cut off any more by the waters of a flood. Neither shall there any more be a flood to destroy the earth. Now remember, this covenant to Noah was actually a repetition, a reconfirmation of the covenant God had already made with Enoch. As we saw last week, it came to pass that Enoch continued his cry unto the Lord, saying, I ask thee, O Lord, in the name of thine only begotten, even Jesus Christ, that thou wilt have mercy upon Noah and his seed, that the earth might never more be covered by the floods. And the Lord could not withhold. And he covenanted with Enoch and sware unto him with an oath that he would stay the floods. And what would he do instead? That he would call upon the children of Noah. A flood of truth to offset the flood of consequence for a flood of iniquity. It's amazing that that's what we've been doing ever since. That's why God calls this family of faith to make a difference in the world. Connecting Noah back to Enoch is something we really need to do in Genesis chapter 9. Because so much of what we see here is, again, an echo of what God had already promised Enoch. Even down to the rainbow. With the rainbow, we always think of Noah. We need to be thinking more of Enoch. Here's the example. Genesis 9, God said, This is the token of the covenant which I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for perpetual generations. I do set my bow in the cloud and it shall be a token of a covenant between me and the earth. Now here again, any of you who are endowed, your ears should perk up with that language. A token of the covenant that whenever God makes a covenant with us, he usually gives us a token to remember the covenant by. That this will be some kind of reminder, some souvenir, so to speak, of a promise, a visible reminder of an invisible promise that I have made with God and that he has made with me. Now, in this case, with a rainbow, keep reading in Genesis 9, it shall come to pass when I bring a cloud over the earth, now, you want to talk about some potential PTSD. It's like, uh-oh, here comes a cloud. Here comes another flood. Is it going to happen again? But when I bring a cloud upon the earth, that the bow shall be seen in the cloud, and I will remember my covenant, which is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh, and the water shall no more become a flood to destroy all flesh. I love that rainbows are synonymous with rain. 
at least they ought to be, that inherent in the rain, as long as there is water in the air that's acting as a prism, then as light shines through it, it can't help but, give, but, but create a rainbow, as long as you're in a position to be able to behold it. I mean, there's a lot of uh, physics in all of this, right? Uh, and the diffusion of light and so on. But what's amazing about it is, in some ways, rain and rainbow are one and the same. And in some ways, inherent in our hardships, if we will only have the eyes to see, is the solution to all of our struggles. And it's the light of Jesus Christ. Wherever there is a rainbow, yes, there is evidence of, of a downpour of despair, but also of a light source somewhere that is poking through the clouds reminding us that this is just passing cloud cover, not permanent darkness. There's something beautiful about that promise. And what I love about it is God uses it not just as something to remind us, but as he says it here, something to remind him. I'm the one that will remember. He says it in verse 16, the bow shall be in the cloud and I will look upon it, that I may remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is upon the earth. Can you picture God looking at those tokens and remembering what he's promised us? I, are we looking at the same thing and remembering the same thing that God is? Now, like I said, we have to associate the rainbow more frequently with Enoch and not just confine it to Noah. It's more than just, I'm not going to flood the earth. It's something better than that. As we saw already, I'm not going to flood the earth with water. I'm going to flood it with truth. I'm going to establish Zion upon the earth, just like I did before this flood. And, and those that were willing to hearken were caught up into it. The same thing can happen in our day. To overcome the wickedness of the, of the world, come into Zion. Come into another ark that we are trying to construct. And that's the kind of covenant God made with Enoch. Now, for this, we have to have the, the Joseph Smith translation of Genesis chapter 9. And to see it in Scripture, you have to go to the appendix. There, it's too long for the footnotes, okay? So if you, if you have uh, hard copy Scriptures, you've got to go to the appendix right before the maps, after the topical guide and Bible dictionary. If you're electronic, you can go to the study aids and see the excerpts of the Joseph Smith translation that are too big for the footnotes. How's this one for Genesis chapter 9, 21 to 23? And the bow shall be in the cloud, and I will look upon it. So far, so good. That I may remember the everlasting covenant, but then notice what Joseph adds by inspiration. Which I made unto thy father Enoch. So this is more than a reminder of you and me, Noah. It's a reminder of me and Enoch. And here's what the promise was. That when men should keep all my commandments, Zion should again come on the earth. The city of Enoch, which I have caught up unto myself. And this is mine everlasting covenant, that when thy posterity shall embrace the truth. Great verb there. It's this hug, this holding. There's the bosom of God. Okay, When they embrace the truth, know it, experiential knowledge, bring it into their heart. When they do that, and when they look upward, instead of downward at the wickedness that is dragging them down, when they look upward, then shall Zion look downward, and all the heavens shall shake with gladness, and the earth shall tremble with joy. 
And the general assembly of the church of the firstborn shall come down out of heaven and possess the earth and shall have place until the end come. And this is my everlasting covenant, which I made with thy father Enoch. That is a mind-blowing JST. To you, Noah, when you see the, 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 bow, the bow in the cloud, you'll know that this rain is going to stop. <laughs> Don't worry. Uh, your posterity will understand that this is not the end. But more than that, when you look at the bow in the cloud, realize that rainbows connect heaven and earth. And I will stay connected to you if you'll just look up and stay connected to me. Rainbows, especially when you see a full rainbow, not only does it go from, from earth up to heaven, it comes back down from, from heaven back to earth. And doesn't that describe the round trip of Zion? It's as if God is saying to Enoch and to all of us, look at the rainbow and remember, as I will, that just as Zion was caught up to heaven, so shall it someday return. That on this stairway of light, so to speak, I am trying to bind the Zion that you will build with the Zion that I will bring. That, as we saw last week, Zion above will meet Zion below. We will see each other. We will know each other. We will fall upon each other's necks, bring each other into one another's bosoms. We'll kiss each other with the kind of Christ-like charity that makes us truly one in him. Oh, to think of a rainbow as that reminder that God is still in the work. He's still engaged with us. He's still trying to turn us all into Zion and connect heaven and earth in ways that never have to be dissolved again. Oh, there's light shining through the rainstorm. It's an incredible promise. No wonder in Revelation chapter 4, when John the Beloved sees God on his throne, he sees a rainbow surrounding that throne. A reminder of covenants made and covenants that will be kept. No wonder later in Revelation, when John sees this mighty angel descending from heaven, he's clothed with a cloud and has a rainbow upon his head. His face was it were the sun, his feet were pillars of fire. Can you, can you picture this mighty angel? This reminder of the covenant? A rainbow upon his head? What's that sound like? A crown of light. Of every variety, all of Zion coming in to become one in God. It's an incredible symbol of an incredible token. A token of a covenant that is more incredible still. Now, there's a big part of me that wishes we could end right here. On that beautiful high note of a covenant made and a token of that covenant remem remembered that God will not cease to call upon us, that he has hope in our future. Unfortunately, that optimism is also tempered by a realism that despite the fact this is a new beginning, Edens always seem to be followed by falls. I remember stages of faith. That those can all be followed by atonement as well, and that's the ultimate hope and the ultimate promise, right? Zion will return. Look at the rainbow. But there are hard times yet ahead. Now, for our story today, what remains are three little episodes that remind us that 
that not all problems can be simply washed away by a flood of consequence. There has to be a change of heart. And what we see first is an issue about, well, some of that same violence that we saw before is carrying through. Secondly, some of the same corruption as before continues on. And third, some of the same unwillingness to hearken to God and trusting in self and our giant power instead, our own renown, uh, gets in the, in the way of our discipleship also. We'll see three quick stories of that in the, in the chapters that remain. The first one comes from an interesting difference between second creation and first. The way Genesis 9 begins is with Noah and his posterity multiplying and replenishing the earth, just like Adam and Eve did from Eden. It also talks about the animal kingdom and their relationship with, with humankind. Now in Eden, it was, a, it was a relationship of dominion. And that's similar here in Genesis 9, but more than dominion, it's a relationship of fear. That's, that's a sad reality. That's fear on the part of the animal kingdom toward the ultimate apex predator, which is you and me. The way it's described, and the fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every fowl of the air, upon all that moveth upon the earth and upon all the fishes of the sea. Into your hand are they delivered. So there is that dominion, but they're afraid of you now. According to verse 3, every moving thing that liveth shall be meat for you. Even as the green herb have I given you all things. So based on this biblical account, this is where humankind becomes carnivorous. No wonder there's fear here. Verse 4, but the flesh with the life thereof, which is the blood thereof, shall ye not eat. Now that's confusing. God just said the moving thing will be meat for us, but here you say you're not supposed to eat it. Well, more clearly, it's the blood you're not supposed to eat. The flesh is okay. The JST clarifies that. But the blood of all flesh, which I have given you for meat, shall be shed upon the ground, which taketh life thereof. And the blood ye shall not eat. So there we see something significant about blood. That it is blood that gives life to the being. He goes on in Genesis to say, Surely your blood of your lives will I require. At the hand of every beast will I require it, and at the hand of man. At the hand of every man's brother will I require the life of man. Whoso sheddeth man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed. For in the image of God made he man. Now, there's a lot to that, and Joseph Smith gives us some clarification in the JST also. The way he put it was, Surely blood shall not be shed only for meat to save your lives. And the blood of every beast will I require at your hands. So with that, yes, we can be carnivorous, but yes, we must be accountable. That we don't shed that blood for no reason. It's to save our lives. It's to preserve ourselves. And indiscriminately shedding the blood of beast for no real purpose, that will be required at our hands. He goes on, Whoso sheddeth man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed. For man shall not shed the blood of man. For a commandment I give, that every man's brother shall preserve the life of man. For in mine own image have I made man. Now for this, we might need to, to put side by side the Genesis and the JST to help see the differences. Now both versions allow for capital punishment. Those that shed the blood of man, by man shall their blood be shed. Throughout uh, Israelite history, capital punishment was a reality. Uh, in our day, I don't mean to get political on this, but it is interesting that 
whether or not capital punishment is a question of morality, which it is, it's sadly it's becoming a question of utility. Not just whether or not it's right, but whether or not it does anything. And that speaks volumes about the day that we're living in, in terms of a, a flood of wickedness, about violence and corruption. Because capital punishment is no longer the deterrent that it once was, or that it was meant to be. So often people that are going to violently take the life of others then end by taking, violently taking the life of themselves. The thought of self-preservation through most of human history was so inherent, so inborn, so biologically based that people would do anything to stay alive, even behave themselves. But what a sad commentary on, on today's society that it doesn't seem to dissuade people like it once did. I'll, I'll leave it at that. But I'll, I'll also say, as far as the difference between Genesis and the JST, that the Genesis version is strictly oh, eliminating the negative. That's something you're not supposed to do because you're created in my image. The JST rephrases it in a more positive dimension. Not just that you're not supposed to shed the blood of man, but more positively, every man's brother shall preserve the life of man. For in mine own image have I made man. I do see that as a positive improvement upon the Genesis version. You are my brother, and therefore I am my brother's keeper. And more than just avoiding violence, I need to take positive responsibility to preserve your life as if it were my own. We're both created in the, in the image of God, after all. Now, if there's the first example that violence, unfortunately, survived the flood, well, corruption did too. And for the second example, we need to see the end of Genesis chapter 9 with this strange story about Noah and his son Ham. Now, according to the story in verse 20, Noah began to be an husbandman. He planted a vineyard. And he drank of the wine and was drunken, and he was uncovered within his tent. Now that verb for uncovered has nothing to do with the covering in terms of atonement, so don't read anything into that. Sometimes that word is translated as removed. So maybe he's just been removed into his tent. Uh, he fell asleep, and so they put him there. But it could be more of a literal, he's somehow uncovered as far as his body is concerned. That's the, that's the hint you get in verse 22. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father. So there's that uncovering. And told his two brethren without. Now verse 23, Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it upon both their shoulders and went backward and covered the nakedness of their father. And their faces were backward and they saw not their father's nakedness. And then Noah awakes from his wine and knows what his younger son had done unto him. Now this is where it gets even weirder than, than it already is. He said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be unto his brethren. And then in the next two verses, Noah blesses Shem and Japheth, and again reiterates that Canaan would be a servant to them both. Now what on earth do we make of this? There seem to be two elements here, at least two main questions. Number one, what had Ham done wrong? What's up with the seeing his father's nakedness? And then second, why was Canaan cursed? Uh, and what does that con curse consist of? What, what Canaan didn't even do anything. Well, there's been thousands of years worth of commentary as both Jews and Christians have wrestled with this story. 
Scholars have suggested everything from voyeurism, where Ham is trying to sneak a peek at something inappropriate, to filial insubordination, that sons and daughters are supposed to preserve the family honor, not expose it to other people. Uh, here's uh, Ham laughing about it in some ways. Oh, you got you to check this out to his older brothers. When Shem and Japheth instead are walking in backwards and, and turning a blind eye to something they're aware of, but not wanting to shine the light upon. I mean, we live in an interesting age. Don't get me wrong, I'm a fan of accurate history. But we seem to, to revel in the mistakes that people have made in the past, to the point, or present, to the point of shining a light on that and only that, or caricaturing things to draw attention to the worst, the worst part of people. I think there's something we can learn from Shem and Japheth. I'm not trying to, to excuse immoralities out there. Uh, I'm not trying to, to turn a blind eye to... I'm not trying to sin against justice, but neither am I trying to sin against mercy. And there's something to be said for giving people the decency of, of turning away instead of rubbernecking to see the mistakes that other people have made. I, I think there's a lesson to be learned there. But that's on one extreme. On the other extreme, some scholars have suggested things as horrific as oh, sodomy or rape, some kind of sexual assault, either on Noah at the part of, of Ham or perhaps even on Noah's wife. Some have suggested that that might explain why Canaan was cursed, that if there are places in the Old Testament, we'll see them in months to come, where to truly usurp a king's or a father's throne, for example, you not, in order to take the kingdom, you prove it by taking their wives or concubines. Uh, you'll see that with Absalom uh, and King David. So some commentators have suggested, is, is that what's happening? That uncovering Noah's nakedness is a euphemism for, for some kind of sexual assault and trying to usurp family authority by taking Noah's wife. And if Canaan was the result of that illicit relationship, well, then th th there's a curse where the family line cannot continue from that incestuous relationship. Now, that's reading a lot into the text, and I don't know if I want to go there. But I think there is some truth to the idea of, of Ham wanting to usurp his father's place. We see Cain wanting to take over Abel's position. We see Lucifer wanting to take over Jehovah's and the father's. This seems to be a problem. Laman wanting to do away with Nephi and with Lehi, ultimately. Well, this is something that actually Jewish tradition has suggested. That, and Latter-day Saints, I think, would, would find some truth to this, uh, or at least some, some fascinating possibilities. That when God gave Adam and Eve this coat of skins, that this was some kind of garment signifying their authority, their dominion over the rest of, of creation, well, and that garment would be passed down father to son through these generations until it ended up with Noah. Now, according to this Jewish tradition, it's possible that what, what Ham was doing was not simply stumbling across his father that was uncovered in the tent, but somehow trying to steal from him this 
priesthood garment, trying to usurp priesthood authority. If that's the case, then no wonder Canaan was cursed in terms of that is not the way to receive priesthood. And so even if you had it at some point, Ham, you have lost it and cannot pass it down to posterity. If that is what that curse of Canaan entails. Now, again, that's a leap as well. Because when it says that servant of servants shall he be, it doesn't mention priesthood at all. And in fact, it doesn't mention the posterity of Canaan. Here's another issue. We talked about this a little bit last week, and we talked about it at the end of last uh, year when we talked about race and the priesthood. That unfortunately, the so-called curse of Cain, and here the so-called curse of Canaan, have been used throughout much of history to justify African slavery. Now, there are huge leaps of logic in order to make that, and that is a misinterpretation and misapplication of Scripture. According to the text itself, we don't know what that curse entailed. It does mention servant of servants, but does that apply only to Canaan? It doesn't say anything about his posterity. It doesn't focus on Africa in any way. It doesn't make this race-based. In fact, according to a lot of the scholarship that's been done on this, this came in closer to modernity than antiquity. That there was slavery throughout ancient time, but it had no, no racial dimension. Uh, that race was kind of a non-issue to people. And yet, in more modern time, as African slavery became the norm, then both Jewish and Muslim and Christian commentators turned to these kinds of texts to seek justification for a practice that they were doing already. Now, as Latter-day Saints, I think there is some reason to lean in the direction of some kind of priesthood usurpation on the part of Ham. Okay? Uh, we'll see that with the help of Abraham chapter 1. In fact, we might as well study it right now because it has more to do with today's material with, with Ham and Canaan and Noah than it does with next week's material with Abraham alone. And so Abraham chapter 1 verse 21 as Abraham is in Egypt, and we get this kind of pause in the narrative to talk about where Egypt is coming from. It says, Now this king of Egypt was a descendant from the loins of Ham, and was a partaker of the blood of the Canaanites by birth. So we're getting these connections with Ham and Canaan and so on. From this descent sprang all the Egyptians, and thus the blood of the Canaanites was preserved in the land. Now, we're going to get some family history here. The land of Egypt being first discovered by a woman who was the daughter of Ham and the daughter of Egyptus. Most suggest that, okay, Ham married a woman named Egyptus. They had a daughter that will be named Egyptus as well. And she's the one that discovered the land of Egypt, named after her. So here it's the, da the daughter of Ham and the daughter of Egyptus, which in the Chaldean signifies Egypt, which signifies that which is forbidden. So again, some sorts of... Subtle hints. There's nothing wrong with Egyptus, the daughter. Uh, she sounds amazing in what we'll see in just a moment. But perhaps Ham was doing something illicit, something forbidden, and thus this name Egypt, uh, meaning forbidden. Well, when this woman discovered the land, it was underwater, probably the flooding of the Nile, who afterwards settled her sons in it. And thus from Ham sprang that race which preserved the curse in the land. Now, what is that curse? We know throughout Scripture that the curse is always separation from God, and it's a curse we bring upon ourselves. Now, if Ham has cut himself off from God as he's trying to usurp authority and power over the family, 
uh, from his father over his brothers, well, there's a curse of being cut off, and that curse is being uh, perpetuated as it goes on through the generations. But again, we don't see any skin color differentiation brought up in this text. Keep going with it. Verse 25. Now, the first government of Egypt was established by Pharaoh, the eldest son of Egyptus, the daughter of Ham. And it was after the manner of the government of Ham, which was patriarchal. He would have learned that from Adam to Seth to Enos to Mahalalel to Jared and so on. Now, Pharaoh, being a righteous man, established his kingdom and judged his people wisely and justly all his days, seeking earnestly to imitate that order established by the fathers in the first generations, in the days of the first patriarchal reign, even in the reign of Adam and also of Noah, his father, who blessed him with the blessings of the earth and with the blessings of wisdom, but cursed him as pertaining to the priesthood. Now Pharaoh, being of that lineage by which he could not have the right of priesthood, notwithstanding the Pharaohs would fain claim it from Noah through Ham, therefore my father was led away by their idolatry, Abraham says. Now that's a tricky passage too. And to be honest, I don't totally know what to make of it. And judging by the commentaries that I've read about it, I don't know if anybody else seems to know what to do with it either. That's a tricky passage. Uh, But it does suggest that there is at least some restriction of priesthood based on whatever we just read in Genesis chapter 9. As it talks about Ham and Canaan and some restriction on passing down the right of priesthood. Now, there's nothing wrong with the Egyptians. In fact, Pharaoh, as described here, was a very righteous person, as was his mother, Egyptus. But somehow, priesthood is blocked from being passed down through this lineage. And that does seem to suggest that something priesthood is going on in that original story with Noah and Ham. Okay? So again, I do lean in the direction of that Jewish tradition about trying to steal the priesthood garment that was passed down from Adam onto Noah. Uh, when you get a sense of Pharaoh, despite his righteousness, wanting to imitate that this is how it's supposed to be done. There is this patriarchal order, and I want to be a part of that. We'll see how this factors in with Abraham next week as he is trying to gain true access to that priesthood authority. Now, unfortunately, yes, this has been used to justify the racial restrictions on priesthood throughout early church history. Uh, That didn't originate with Joseph Smith, because as we talked about at the end of last year, we know that Joseph did give priesthood to people of African ancestry, Uh, that there were black priesthood holders in the early days of the church, that uh, crossing the plains and entering the promised land in in Salt Lake Valley, Green Flake was there, a a black man. There is such a powerful history of the contributions of African-American members of the church, and more recently, of African members of the church. I, I, I hesitate to even bring this up because I know it can be such a painful subject for so many. And that is something we all need to wrestle with and root out whatever vestiges of racism might remain within the church. Abraham 1 does allow for some kind of priesthood restriction. Unfortunately, there were just leaps of logic made from that passage to assign it to perpetuity and to assign it to everyone of African descent. Nothing in Abraham 1, or in Genesis 9, or in Genesis uh, 4 with Cain, requires us to make those kinds of leaps of logic. As I've said before, the Bible is typically simply used as ethos for hire. 
ethos is the authority of the speaker in rhetorical studies. And because, well, as the good book says, as Tevye says in Fiddler on the Roof, if I can get the good book to say something, then I've just hired it as the authority for whatever argument I'm trying to make. And unfortunately, the Bible has been ethos for hire for time immemorial. And even in church history, people who have tried to justify a racial restriction on priesthood have turned to biblical passages, and even that passage in the Pearl of Great Price, to try to justify their decisions. I, for one, am incredibly grateful for prophetic guidance and for ongoing revelation to help us clarify that our previous interpretation of these kinds of scriptures were incorrect. Line upon line, precept upon precept, that's how things go. And as far as our study of Ham is concerned, this is about as far as it goes. There is no happy ending here. There is no, no coming to himself and returning to God. There is simply a cutting himself off of that righteous line of authority. The first creation's Cain becomes the second creation's Canaan. And we see similar problems proceed. Now, a third example of wickedness outliving the flood. And that's the Tower of Babel. Now, in chapter 10 of Genesis, which they call the Table of Nations, describes these three sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, Japheth, and the tribes and families of the earth that grow out of them. Well, in Ham's posterity, through a son named Cush, we now have a grandson named Nimrod. And he'll factor importantly here. Verse 8 of Genesis 10, Cush begat Nimrod, and he began to be a mighty one in the earth. Now, that should probably alert us that this might not be a good thing. We saw the giants before, these men of renown, but it's, it's physical strength and not spiritual. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Wherefore it is said, even as Nimrod, the mighty hunter before the Lord. So he ends up with his nickname. And the beginning of his kingdom was Babel or Babel. Now we're going to get the story of the Tower of Babel in chapter 11. But here in chapter 10, you meet where it all kind of comes from, and that's Nimrod. He's the beginning of Babel and Erech and Akkad and Kalne in the land of Shinar. Out of that land went forth Asher and builded Nineveh. So there you get the foundation of the Babylonian Empire, there's Babel, and the Assyrian Empire, and that's Asher. So the two biggest enemies of Israel... The Assyrians scatter the northern kingdom. The Babylonians destroy the southern kingdom. You get the, these two great symbols of the wicked world. And they all grow out of this man, Nimrod. Now we'll come right back to him. But Genesis 11 verse 1, the whole earth was of one language and of one speech. I mean, it sounds like the kind of unity we saw back in Zion, right? One heart, one mind. Well, here it's one language, one speech. Unfortunately, they're not dwelling together in righteousness, and their unity is not being put in pursuit of righteous goals. Instead, what do they decide to do? In verse 4, they said, Go to, let us build us a city and a tower whose top may reach unto heaven, and let us make us a name, lest we be scattered abroad upon the face of the whole earth. Now this city will be Babylon. This tower will be the tower of Babel. Babel. Their name... Well, we just wanted a name that, that will be remembered throughout history, that here was a people that could 
ascend to God, to heaven itself, on their own power. Now, Babylon, that's just a counterfeit Zion. There's the city. Babel is a counterfeit temple. There's the tower. And the name? Oh, we want to make a name for ourselves. We want to be men of renown. We want to be giants in the world's estimation. That's just a counterfeit for taking upon ourselves the name of Christ. Oh, renowned sons of men versus humble sons of God. And what's, what's their fear? We just don't want to be scattered. Well, there's the irony, since that's exactly what this led to. They're scattering. Ask the brother of Jared about that. The opposite of scattering is gathering, to being brought into Zion, to be caught up to heaven, to be with God. This whole story smacks of opposites as we've seen throughout Scripture so far. Which side of the line will be on in the war in heaven? Which side of the line will we be on in Eden? Which side of the family will we be on with Cain and Abel, with, with Shem versus Ham, with Abraham versus Nimrod, with Zion versus Babylon? That will be the dichotomy that will carry us through the rest of Scripture. Are we trying to ascend the hill of the Lord, to Mount Zion? Or are we building our own Tower of Babel to try to get to God or to get to whatever our goal might be in some counterfeit way? So what does God do? Verse 6, the Lord says, Behold, the people is one. They have all one language. And this they begin to do. And now nothing will be restrained from them, which they have imagined to do. Like I said, this is unity put on the wrong path towards wrong goals. So verse 7, go to, let us go down, and there confound their language, that they may not understand one another's speech. If you ever tried to speak across language barriers, you realize just how hard it can be to achieve a common purpose without a common language. I was doing research once on the Italian mission in the 1850s, and these missionaries were up in these tiny little Piedmont valleys between Italy and France, way up in the, in the mountains. And depending on what, uh, what needed to be done, sometimes the people spoke Italian, sometimes they spoke French, and sometimes they spoke this, this local dialect called Piedmontese. And one of the American missionaries, literally in his journal, it was either in his journal or a letter home, I can't remember, he, he literally cursed the Tower of Babel. He's like, oh, curse you, uh, that I'm dealing with all of these linguistic challenges. I have to learn three more languages on my mission. Well, welcome to life post-Tower of Babel, right? There's something to be said then for when we learn about one another, when we learn each other's languages and cultures and hear each other's stories. In a way, building that kind of Zion-like unity is reversing the Tower of Babel. Instead of the scattering, we are working on the gathering and all of that is this reversal of this, of this fallout from that second creation's fall. Amazing what we get to be engaged in. And again, think of the brother Jared and the Jaredites as the poster children for being able to escape some of the negative consequences of this. In verse 8, the Lord scattered them abroad from thence upon the face of all the earth, and they left off to build the city. So there's one way to put a halt to this, this negative construction project. Now, in a way, that gets us to the end of this week's material. Now, the rest of Genesis 11 is simply genealogy that ends up with Abraham, or Abram, to this point, uh, and that's where we'll pick up next week. 
But before we close, I do want to say something about, about Babel and something to kind of tie together all the stuff that we've been talking about so far. You see, one of the problems with the Tower of Babel is that it's, it's meant to be a shortcut to heaven, that I don't have to worship my way to heaven. I can work my way there instead. That I don't have to... It, it's like we talked about last year in the Doctrine and Covenants. You have all these people racing to be in Zion instead of becoming Zion along the way. And so here we are. I can just build my way instead of become my way to, to being a Zion people. Now that's one problem. And this idea of no shortcuts to heaven is a great principle to learn from this story. There's another one, and that is something suggested by Josephus. That part of the concern, I mean, I mean think about this, the placement of this story. It comes right on the heels of the flood. And what was the flood about? Well, no matter how high you go, it's going to cover the mountaintops. Some have suggested, and Josephus was one of them, that perhaps the Tower of Babel was not just a, a shortcut way to get to heaven, but a way to circumvent the consequence of poor decisions. It's almost like, man, I don't want to have to become Zion. Is there a better, easier way to get there? Or, I really don't want to become Zion. I want to live however I want to live, but I want to eliminate the consequence, like we've seen so many times so far. If I can divorce choice and consequence, then I can revel in my agency and avoid all sense of accountability. Well, if I, ju I just have to outbuild the consequences. If I can climb above and get beyond having to pay the piper, then I'm fine. I can live it up. I can fall back into violence and corruption and not hearkening to God and selling myself. I can outclimb the flood of wickedness so that the flood of consequences never catches up to me. Now there's a lesson that we need to, to learn as well. That there is no building out or above or away from the consequences of our sins. There's only repentance. There's a third thing too, and this goes back to this idea of Nimrod. If he's a mighty hunter, this goes back to Jewish tradition too. The same traditions that suggest that Ham had tried to steal the coat of skins that had been passed down from Adam to Noah. According to the same tradition, it had somehow gone down to Ham's son, Cush, and then from Cush to Nimrod. They suggest that the reason that Nimrod, this is a fascinating uh, tradition, okay? We don't, it's not in scripture. We don't know if this is uh, accurate or not, but it's a fascinating tradition that the reason that Nimrod was such a mighty hunter is that he was wearing the coat of skins that Adam had been given to establish dominion over the creation, and that thinking that this were a righteous Adam, the animals would just come and submit to Nimrod, making them an easy target to his predation. Again, the fear of man that we saw in the aftermath of of this second creation? Well, if it's a second Adam in front of us, there's nothing to fear, right? Well, no, this is Nimrod. No wonder he became a mighty hunter. Well, according to the same tradition, there was this thought that Nimrod was so angry at God for destroying the earth of his ancestors that not only was he trying to, to get to heaven on his own power, and not only was he trying to eliminate any consequences for poor choice, but a tower that reached to heaven would give him, this mighty hunter, a great vantage point from which to fire his arrows into heaven itself in hopes of bringing down God. There, is, there are some fascinating Jewish traditions 
about an angel holding a, a bird and the, and the arrow goes through and strikes the bird and so that when the arrow comes back down to earth, there's blood on it, thus tricking Nimrod into thinking that he really has overcome the king of heaven, that he really is uh, able to do his own thing and will never have to, to face the music. Well, that's an impossibility as well, but also a source of good life lessons for us too. There's no getting back to God in the wrong way. There's no getting around God in the wrong way. And there's certainly not getting back at God in the wrong way. He wants us home. He is the God who weeps. And the God who, who calls and covenants. A God who wants to make it possible for all of us to ascend home. To be caught up in his bosom. Among so many other lessons learned today, I hope that these stories have taught us that there's a right and a wrong way to get to heaven, and a right and a wrong way to deal with the consequences of our choices. Babel, if there's ever a, a firm to hire to get you back to God, it's not Babel construction, okay? Uh, it's either going to be Noah Cruise Lines or Zion Airways. Either one of those would serve as a wonderful travel agent for your trip back to God. Uh, to be honest, Zion is our ultimate option, our ultimate goal. Look to the rainbow and realize that God is trying to connect heaven and earth through each of us as we are flooding the earth with light and truth. Someday that, that flood of fire will come. Someday the earth will be cleansed and received its paradisical glory. Someday Zion will be here and we'll all be able to be a part of it. And so keep your sights on Zion. But in the meantime, come into the ark. I testify of the, the power of its construction. I, I, I know that God looks upon the tokens of his covenant and remembers the promises that he's made and therefore calls us into his ark with a desire to seal us in. It is a place of noonday brilliance. It is a place of covenant making and covenant keeping between men and women who desire not just to preserve their lives, but to perpetuate the life of discipleship throughout the generations. The temple and the covenants we make there, that is wood that floats. All because of the covering of the atonement of Jesus Christ May we take that pitch upon us and cover ourselves inside and out with that protective embrace of Jesus Christ. Remember that beautiful mental image that Enoch gave us last week. When he saw in vision Noah's Ark, he saw God smiling upon it and holding it in his own hands. I pray that image will return to us the next time we go to the temple. That whenever we are in that ark, keeping that covenant, rest assured, my friends, that God is smiling upon you and that you are being held in the hands of heaven.